What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 244 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Charlie Walker, travel writer, modern day explorer, all around interesting, cool dude. I heard him first on the Joe Rogan show, and it really caught my attention that he had subjected himself to a lot of similar things that I had, but had taken it a lot farther within his travels. Charlie rode his bicycle for four years. He left England, rode up to the northernmost part of Europe, across your Asia to Singapore, and then back down to the tip of Africa and back up to England. Took him four years to do this. Really incredible story. But he was on the Joe Rogan show for another conversation about how he had just been caught recently in the northernmost part of Russia and suspected of espionage where they kept him, interrogated him, but then finally released him and deported him. If you want to hear that story, I'll put that in the show notes because in this episode, we don't go into too much detail on that, but it's definitely worth hearing more about Charlie and that experience on the Joe Rogan podcast, which again, I'll put in the show notes. But today's episode, we talk more about Charlie's cycling adventure, the four years he spent on a bicycle, and just kind of go into the more philosophical parts of his experience. You know, what he was thinking, how he was pushing through the hard times, the conclusions he came to going through all these little villages and different cultures around those continents. It was fun and exciting for me to connect with him. And prior to having him on the show, I listened to on Audible both of his books he's written since the experience where he documents that ride, which I highly, highly recommend. He narrates it. Now, if you're a reader, by all means, go to Amazon, order it. But I listened to it on Audible. It was great because he narrates it, and I really connected with his voice, knowing that he was the guy who put in the miles on the bicycle. And for the first book, which is called Through Sand and Snow, I was welling up for most of it because I was so connected to the experiences that he was having. He just writes in such a beautiful way. It's so vivid. You're right there with him. The kindness that is shown to him throughout the throughout both books, really, is just exactly what I experienced on the road and still try to help people understand that this world is so full of kind people. The majority of the world is full of kind people who are wanting to help you in hard times or just show you how beautiful their culture is. And as you hear him talk about riding his bike through Iran, that really comes across because as you might be listening to this from the United States, the UK, Australia, Obviously, the media does not portray Iran specifically right now in that way and for the and for justifiable reasons. But on the ground in these countries, you will really find that the kindness just overflows towards you and people are so willing to give you shelter, give you food. And he does such a good job of bringing that across in both of his books. So I definitely recommend you go get those books. The first one's called Through Sand and Snow. The second one is called on Roads That Echo. Start with his first book, Through Sand and Snow, because that's where he kicks off his adventure, leaving his parents' house in England in his early 20s. And then the second book is basically part two of his bicycle ride through Africa. And I just can't say enough positive things about those books because they're just so worth it. If you are somebody who seeks adventure or wants to hear about adventure, these books really nail emotionally what you go through, the sights, the sounds, the people, the breathtaking just experiences that, funnily enough, even if you haven't gone to necessarily the places that Charlie talks about in his book, 
there is a correlation with just humanity in every country and how you're treated and the experiences you had. That's what really came across to me. So again, can't recommend it enough. Definitely check it out through sand and snow on roads that echo. And if you want to hear more detail about Charlie being held captive in Russia, head over to the Joe Rogan podcast. I'll put all those in the show notes. And I just want to let you know, I really appreciate you being here listening to this episode today. It's always fun to get to do this. So please, if you find this episode interesting, share it with a friend who you also think might enjoy it. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Charlie Walker. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Walker, travel writer. Welcome to the show, Charlie. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks, Chapin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. I was really inspired by your books, Through Sand and Snow, On the Road That Echoes, really connected with Through Sand and Snow because I've been to a handful of places that you cycled through. Um, Africa has not been in my travel itinerary of recent. It is in the future. But the four years you spent on your bicycle really captivated me as I think it has many people since you've been on this whirlwind tour. Uh, real quick, how was it being on Joe Rogan's show? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it was great, you know, surreal. Um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an everyday experience, but he was a very nice guy, generous host, um, had a long, interesting chat. No, it was a good experience. Um, spoke about a lot of things that I would not have expected us to get onto, but I suppose that's kind of a, that's kind of what makes that podcast often quite interesting. Do you listen to him ever? Or is that kind of random for you? I listened to a bunch. Um, I wouldn't say I listen sort of frequently, but I, you know, I keep an eye out and there's the odd guest that pops up that I'm you know interested to hear about. But, uh, the, 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 fight episodes and comedians um those are not so much that's not where i would go for that well, i'm not interested in in sort of you know martial arts anyway but for comedy there's there's other places yeah you know with um the adventures that you had what would you say you're most known for just to get i'll do a little preamble to my audience before this we go live with this but what would you say you're most known for within the world that you live in um if you'd asked me a few months ago, I probably would have said the four-year-long bicycle journey that you've already alluded to. Um, I guess there are just not that many people who go away and spend the best part of half a decade on a bicycle. There are there are people out there who do it, uh, just not so many. Uh, although in, in recent months, that's perhaps been slightly usurped in public consciousness by my experience in Russia earlier this year, where things went a little bit awry in a country that's gone more than a little bit awry um so perhaps that now but i i guess uh, different people would have a different take on that yeah and i'll reference all this in my show notes folks you definitely want to hear him on joe rogan because he goes into a lot of depth about how he was what taken prisoner essentially in russia picked up and uh suspected of espionage is that kind of what happened to you yeah that's pretty much it it was um well, I, you know, I won't go into the intricacies of it now because it, it, it's kind of a long and relatively complicated story. But basically, 
I went out before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, I was very, very far away from Ukraine. So I made the decision to stay out there and continue doing the journey, the hike that I'd gone to do up in the Arctic Circle. Um, and as my journey unfolded over, over the course of two months, slowly my position just came more and more precarious until I reached my finish line at which point I was arrested and thrown behind bars for a month and mercifully deported. And here I am today, uh, although with every passing week, I realized more and more how sort of lucky and frankly unlikely that was to be deported, given the, the state of Russia's uh, judicial system today. Yeah, I thought a lot about that because I have had similar experiences throughout my travels in the world where you kind of just play dumb and you know, they really aren't going to do anything to you because you're a foreigner. You haven't done anything illegal and the paperwork that they have to go through to actually process you sucks. So you just kind of like when I was in Russia, me and my friend had a, a pact that like if they want to take us to jail, we'll go because it's going to be a warm night's sleep and maybe some free food. Obviously, in hindsight, as you're having now, maybe that was a little naive. But, you know, throughout your book and uh, hearing you talk about how you dealt with all these sorts of um, people who have power over you. Um, there are moments I think we can get ourselves into where it's like all of a sudden we're stripped of all of our rights that we're so familiar with. Um, but having you now on the podcast, I'm really curious to kind of go into more of like, I guess, the philosophical side of why you do this, you know, with the pushing yourself for four years on a bicycle to the four corners of the Eurasian continent to then continue to choose to subject yourself to these adventures. I'd love to get more into the psychology of, of why you're doing it. You know, something I really connected with in your book was you're the type of person who, when they say they're going to do something, you do it. And you're kind of connected to and motivated through that sort of statement alone. Has that changed for you as you moved into these new adventures and these new goals you've set for yourself? I wouldn't say that has changed. Um, I, I, I do think and I've always thought that one of the best ways to actually get things done is to lay out your plans and therefore you become immediately accountable to everyone you've told about it in some sense. I mean, maybe you don't care what they think, but most people do care what most other people think. Um, I that that still pertains to me, but I suppose I find it easier with every you know passing journey to make the decision and the sort of announcement that I'm going to do something. So with more experience, with more years that pass, um, and my sort of body hasn't started to kind of decline yet, so far it, it, it does get easier to make these decisions, but the the reasons why I stick to them, um, well, there's so many different reasons. And frankly, every time someone asks me a question along these lines, they're liable to get a slightly different answer because there's no one succinct uh, explanation. But the, the 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 reasons remain usually more or less the same, but the weighting towards the different reasons, the kind of the balance, the, that, that scale tips a little bit from journey to journey. Yeah, I was considering that as you continue to encounter these hardships on the road where your motivation has to change. And what's so remarkable about you is that you continue to set these really lofty goals and punishing goals that you somehow find a way to push through, which I think is pretty relevant to the individuals who are listening who don't necessarily have the similar, same type of goals, but it can be related to in pushing through the hard times. So when you do encounter those moments where you're freezing to death, say, in Tibet, um, and really questioning why you've made this decision. Can you maybe take us in detail through that thought process? Like 
and how you're moving through it? Sure. Um, well, I, first I would say that whenever, you know, having a particularly tough spell following some sort of goal, whatever it might be, um, the the way to kind of keep going and to, to get through it isn't often a sense of kind of inflexibility, a kind of, you know, stubborn, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this no matter what. Often it involves an element of flexibility. So uh, adjusting or altering, if not the plans, then how you go about achieving them. Um, that you know there's been many times where i've sort of you know been midway through a journey and started going down one avenue either uh mentally logistically or even just geographically and then i realized ah that's not going to work and you know having the flexibility to pivot reroute whatever is really important but to answer your question specifically in in tibet up there a large part of the uh motivation or reason to keep going was the fact that i had sort of got myself into a mess and had to get myself out of it uh on on the one hand i was in a very remote place with very very seldom passing traffic there would often be three or four sometimes even five days i think at one time at a time where no vehicles passed me in either direction so i was really out in the elements temperatures down to the sort of I think they probably bottomed out around minus 40, which is a nice convenient number because it's the same in Celsius and Fahrenheit. Um, and it, it, in those conditions, there was no way often, particularly at the times when things were hardest in a blizzard or shivering in my tent at night or whatever it might be, there was no way to kind of click my fingers and be done, be out of there, go home, start, you know, whatever. Uh, so it just, it came down to a matter of you know necessity really um you know i was compelled to keep going just to survive even though i wanted to give up and get out of there i would have had to keep going for that purpose anyway um so that in some sense is quite easy because that doesn't really come down to motivating yourself not to quit because when quitting is not an option literally logistically not an option it's very easy to continue because it's either continue or just stop and kind of atrophy until you just become <laughs> a pile of bones, you know, bleached out on the plateau somewhere. Um, so perhaps counterintuitively at times like that, it's easier to keep going on a mental level, if perhaps not on a physical level, than at times where there is the easy out Um in the Sahara, for instance, uh, to take us to the other end of the uh, Mercury <laughs> spectrum, um, you know, I was cycling in temperatures up to around plus 50 degrees Celsius, which I think is about 115 or something. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And I was, you know, pretty desperate to quit because it was just so unbearably hot. And the days were interminable and I was always short on water. And every time I opened my mouth, every drop of moisture, not just on my tongue, but inside my mouth and down, you know, a few inches of throat would instantly evaporate. And I was just constantly, it felt like I was kind of, you know, chewing sandpaper. Um, and there was passing traffic. There were vehicles, you know, maybe not every five minutes, but at least every hour. And every passing vehicle was likely to have a very friendly Sudanese person in it who was very likely to say, yeah, of course, if I asked for a lift, you know throw your bike in let's go uh so times like that that's a lot harder i find you know mentally to to keep going and and again with a sense of sort of repivoting when it got extremely hot i spent a few days nocturnally um cycling in the night and uh sleeping in the day and that made it more bearable um often as well it comes down to really facing yourself and asking do i really want to stop and give up what i'm doing just because of the kind of the micro discomfort 
discomfort in the microcosmic sense you know temporally right now i'm having a shit time but overall the in the grand scheme of things what i'm doing is maybe a lot of it's type two fun but it is uh liberating and uh you know educational and all sorts of different you know wonderful benefits and you know not losing sight of the macrocosm when you're wrapped up in the microcosm is 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 quite important I like that. Can you describe type two fun? I love that um, sediment. Type two fun. Well, I'll give you all the types of fun. Type one fun is fun at the time. And you look back at it later and you think, ah, that was fun. And type two fun is not fun at the time. Um, I would say uh, things that terrify you, um, things that are you know, running a marathon, for instance, things that are extremely uncomfortable or painful or whatever. But then later you look back at them and you think, yeah, that was great. I'm glad I did that. I'm glad for it. Uh, and type three fun is, is neither fun at the time nor with hindsight. Uh, the word fun is a bit of a misnomer there. Um, but yeah, a lot of what I do is type two fun. There's a fair bit of type three fun um, peppered in amongst it. Um, and, you know, there is some type one fun, but it's it's not the my default. Can you give us an example of type three that you've endured that, is definitely not fun in hindsight and while you're doing it yeah i i actually think much of that time in tibet um for the primary reason that i was just incredibly lonely um on top of the the cold and the danger and the feeling kind of out of my element the fact that i was ill-equipped i didn't have the right gloves the right coat the right sleeping bag the right tent the right shoes i was wearing uh, wellington boots rubber boots the sort of thing you wear to go fly fishing um and that was all compounded by the fact that I just felt incredibly alone. I was 23. I hadn't yet, I thought I was quite good in my own company, but I realized later that I hadn't yet spent a week entirely in my own company. And although I said a vehicle passed at least every five days, um, after the first two weeks of a six week period up there, um, I, uh, snuck through a border post. I cut, cut my way through the wire of a military base to get into Tibet because you're not allowed in there. To, well, you're not allowed to travel independently in Tibet on a bicycle. So I cut my way through in the night. And after that, even if vehicles approached, I'd see them way off in the distance. So I'd have to scramble off the road and hide. So I was incredibly isolated and, and just very, very deeply lonely. Um, yeah, so that a lot of that was type three fun. Uh, but there were... There were times when I was on a on my way down from a pass, zigzagging down, even though my hands were totally numb with some of the most spellbinding, jaw-dropping panoramas of mountains that you know that I've ever seen. There, there were times in there where it was fantastic. Yeah, Tibet's a magical place. When I was there, I felt like I was on the moon. I mean, it was just nothing I'd ever encountered before. Yeah. Can you go into a little bit more the feeling of loneliness? And what it means to be alone versus lonely and how you would deal with that. Because there's a lot of people listening right now who are incredibly lonely but surrounded by loved ones. The loneliest I've ever been was laying next to a girlfriend who I didn't who who I knew wasn't into me anymore, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. like can you kind of take us through that and how you deal with loneliness and what it means to you? Yeah. Um I'd say firstly, unfortunately, there's no sort of easy hack to it. Um I think uh a lot of coping with loneliness comes with 
experience. And I suppose on the plus side, you can see any loneliness is experienced that should hopefully, although unpleasant at the time, and perhaps it's not going to be type two fun, uh, hopefully later with hindsight, that can be the experience that gives you the sort of tool belt to, to, to not feel lonely at equivalent points in the future. Um, this is a quote that I often have to hand and often forget but i think i've got it right at the moment um the, there's a, a poet a belgian american poet i believe called may sarton who said that uh loneliness is the paucity of self and solitude is the richness of one's own company it's a slight paraphrase there but basically they're two sides of the same coin being by yourself can be loneliness it can be lonely and it can also be enriching solitude is something that we i suppose we're all aware on some level is or can be a positive thing and you'll see um i mean how often when you see some sort of indescribably cheesy sort of adventure poster with a rising sun and someone sitting by a tent that kind of you know cliche type picture the sort of thing that pops up on instagram all the time often as not there's only one person in it you know the the image the idea the sense of solitude of peace of space of tranquility of retreat um that is something that we all know about but to actually to understand that and to positively experience that or successfully experience that is two very different things um increasingly i mean i, I don't struggle with being by myself now at all um well for example in this in this uh detention center in russia i had two weeks in a cell sharing with two other guys who were both perfectly nice blokes uh followed by two weeks by myself and, and i preferred the latter because i i was able to kind of do things on my own terms that's not to say that i am a hermit in life i i, I live with a partner happily and we are happily together and we're also happily apart when we're apart um i'm i realize i'm sort of verging towards waffle here but uh the the the, the, the long and the short of it is the more experiences you have the more time passes the more you hopefully learn to appreciate the 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 difference of being alone we are so rarely truly alone in our lives we so rarely have space um that to, to see it as a as a positive thing as an escape as a formative experience is usually hopefully increasingly something we're able to do rather than seeing it as something that's cripplingly isolating and, and painful and uncomfortable and unpleasant um but there's, there's there's no shortcut sadly as far as i know some people may have them and some people may never struggle with it at all um but that's been my experience it's been just a slow sense of sort of ramping up towards com being comfortable with it and that's come through a lot of experience by myself yeah i mean i like that you said it in that way because it, it is learnable you know where people can subject themselves and then compare and contrast you know those moments that you described of feeling lonely and then working through it in any way that you can and just having that tool belt that you can reach back into when those moments occur and that's cool that you don't have those moments anymore however i would say that in a time of pain and struggle like you in the arctic circle i would imagine it still probably creeps in at times if you're by yourself no or you you're completely content even though it sucks and you're having third tier fun you don't get lonely I think I am content now, but then behind all of that, I don't, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that I've chosen to do it. So a lot of people, you know, particularly over the last, was it two and a half years at points, particularly during the sort of the height of the pandemic, the lockdowns, which were to greater or lesser extent in different parts of the world, a lot of people would have felt painfully alone, lonely at those times. And that's because it was enforced upon them. 
and that's probably quite different and uh, i try not to lose sight of the fact when i am out in the world by myself that i've chosen to do that and uh that there's a reason I wanted to do that. And I sometimes maybe I need to scrape around a little bit and remind myself what that is. But once I found that, then you know, things are probably going to be you know, bearable um, or, or even positive. Yeah. I like that word enforced right now, just under the circumstances of the world and, and the places that you've been, which have you know, tyrannical dictators at times. And I find myself at times uh, feeling like I'm a slave to this desire for freedom where I'm constantly trying to, feel free. Um, a girlfriend actually pointed out to me that I was a slave to that notion of trying to always feel free. Um, that's quite an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever find yourself now with this kind of life that you've designed for yourself trapped by it? Um, I've contemplated that before. I don't think I am. Um, I am on the road less than I used to be, but still a decent amount. Um, whereas, you know, a decade ago I was out for four, four and a half years out of the country on, you know, on, on my way. Uh, nowadays I'm usually based in the UK for eight or nine months of each year. Um, and so I have a, a home, I feel kind of rooted when I'm here and yet not tied when I'm gone, which is a nice sort of balance to have. Uh, but I have, you know, it, it's crossed my mind. It's occurred to me that I've essentially slowly disqualified myself for every other job. You know, I, I am now a, a writer and a speaker sort of in the sphere of adventure travel. It would be quite, not impossible, but quite hard for me now to perhaps get a job that I would find fulfilling. Of course, there's many different jobs that i mean we've got a huge job shortage in the uk because we foolishly left the eu and uh, a lot of our workers were forced to leave um I, I could get a job i'm sure but to find one that i enjoyed and, and found fulfilling would be quite hard so maybe i am for the time being at least sort of stuck in this uh in this kind of loop this pattern that i built for myself but currently that doesn't feel like a trap or a bad place to be I'm glad. I uh, interviewed Leon Logothetis, a countryman of yours who did The Kindest Diaries on Netflix, and uh, he's the kindness guy, and he's built a lifestyle around kindness, and he's like, sometimes I don't feel like being kind, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, I don't think he struggles with it because it's obviously not a bad thing to always keep at the forefront of your mind to, you know, if you're being pet pelted by rocks in Ethiopia like you were, to always put your best foot forward, but at times it can be annoying and to be labeled as the kindness guy or like the adventure traveler when you know i mean that that tour you took around eurasia was what you said 10 years ago uh i started mid 2010 and i came back at the end of 2014 yeah wild wild and, the, and since then you've what you've walked across where you rode across papua new guinea as well I've walked um, across the highlands in papua new guinea and then uh pack rafted down a river um so that was a two-month trip uh, I spent eight months with a friend traveling the length of the Europe-Asia border or the sort of supposed or perceived geographical border between Europe and Asia, investigating loosely, investigating the concept of that border and sort of building a case for, for forgetting about it as a concept because it, it is fatuous. Um, Were you on so foot or by bicycle? Uh, the first three months was on ski in the Ural Mountains. So that was starting up on the Arctic coast in Arctic winter. Uh, then about 
10 weeks or three months perhaps uh down a uh, 1500 mile river in a tandem kayak and then a couple of months by bicycle at the end of that um ending up in istanbul um and since then i've i've done quite a lot of sort of hiking and climbed uh did some mountaineering in kyrgyzstan last year and then this latest trip in um in uh, Yakutia in Siberia this year. So that's all the big trips and then little other bits, you know, fitted in here and there. And then this is all documented just through a blog or like how are you getting all these adventures out into the world? Uh, I actually don't blog anymore. Um, I'm not really aware of – I'm aware of increasingly few blogs actually. Um, I I write articles um, you know, now and then for papers and magazines, sometimes for online um i am working on a, a third book about my recent experience in russia at the moment um there'll probably be another book about papua new guinea to follow um and i do quite a lot of public speaking so each journey tends to become a talk a presentation a story um and i give those to audiences uh, predominantly around the uk but occasionally overseas as well and the point of the story is obviously to tell your, about your adventure, but are you giving it to like businesses to what rally them, inspire them to think outside of the box or what? Um, all sorts of different things. I, I talk quite a lot to schools, which I, I really enjoy actually talking to school kids. And those, uh, those sessions often have uh, – sometimes they just want uh, an inspiring story. Sometimes they want something entertaining. Sometimes they want something to – broaden people's horizons it's it's kind of whatever brief the the school wants uh, with businesses usually it is something you know sort of a you know a pep talk to, to to motivate them uh although i i tend to see it as sort of storytelling with hopefully a, a sort of a motivational thread running through it as opposed to here are bullet points about how to turn your life around because i i, I worry that when i whenever i've seen people give presentations along those lines I don't buy it often. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also give talks to uh, travel clubs, festivals, I mean, anything really. This weekend, I'm at the Armchair Adventure Festival down in the southwest of England, which will be a bunch of people full of a bunch of beers sitting under a tent with hopefully not much rain, uh, just in a sort of, you know, big top tent. Um, so story time, I guess. So, yeah, all sorts of different events. That's awesome. That's how you sustain yourself at this point, just giving speeches and selling books. Yeah, it's about... It's about 50-50 writing uh, and speaking, mm-hmm. uh, income-wise. Yeah. What's one thing you discovered about yourself that you didn't know in these adventures that you do, that you are proud of, that you just really knew wasn't even inside you? Hmm. Good question. Uh, I mean, the easy answer is is that I'm increasingly uh, aware of uh, an ability to kind of, you know, to keep going when things are hard, to... Um, I'm, I'm physically no specimen, <laughs> but uh, mentally, I, I think I'm relatively robust and able to deal with setbacks and difficulty. But that does seem like a bit of a cop out as an answer. So perhaps, uh, I mean, I think I've got increasingly a decent sort of broad base of knowledge about different parts of the world, their histories, cultures, politics, climate, etc. And you know, that'll, this will be a, a kind of a lifelong job trying to further flesh out this kind of picture, this view that I have of the world, which will differ, you know, a little or a lot from many other people's views. But over time, we, as we kind of flesh out our knowledge, we all form our unique kind of 
picture and i i hope that mine is um sort of on the relatively full side of things um i'm i'm relatively good sponge for information so that's something i don't think i knew when i was uh you know just starting out getting into travel yeah i i don't know if you intended that to come across in your book and maybe we just are aligned in some of our views about the world but i think a lot of like what i said pre-conversation my views about the world were justified based on what you wrote about and what i thought you might have been implying and i feel like pre-show i was thinking about it probably better to have you as like an advisor to a president or like the un <laughs> rather than some of these assholes that we hear spouting about things they have no idea about since you've been on the ground in some of these places <laughs> and actually understand the politics can you maybe share a little bit about your view of the world um maybe how we've come to this state where we're at globally um geopolitically and where we're going sure um i i suppose firstly it's it's hard to be succinct on this and to speak in sort of broad sweeping terms because it's it's a sort of infinitely intricate and complex topic. Um, I read a very good book last year by an American journalist called Anne Applebaum, uh, who is is excellent, really, really. Uh, she, I mean, she's she's written a lot about Russia and the Soviet bloc over the years. Her book on the Gulag system is, I think, probably the most kind of ministerial out there. Um, but she wrote this book recently called, uh, the twilight of democracy. And it looked at four case studies, um, as part of a sort of wider trend of the shift of countries sort of formally or traditionally thought of democratic, um, countries with good due process and what various leaders have done to chip away at that. So the case studies were um, Britain with Boris Johnson, um, America under Donald Trump, whether you like Trump or not, the fact that she, he, he tried to um, sort of fence and diminish the state apparatus of democracy and oversight is pretty much uncontestable uh and then um victor orban in hungary and um uh oh, i also go blank with this the fella in poland polish president who i'm it'll come back to me um she's married to, the applebaum is married to a polish opposition politician or former opposition uh, member of parliament um but this book i mean basically it's populism and Populism isn't necessarily always a bad thing. It's one of these terms that because of recent things has become, it can be a good thing. It's not bad in and of itself. Populism just means doing what's popular, but often that means without thought as to why it's potentially bad or whether it's good or bad in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of measures that have happened in a lot of countries, I mean, there we named just four, but uh, I mean, with... Uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago now, with the uh, the coup in Myanmar, uh, that tipped the scale from there now being more uh, non-democracies or failed democracies in the world than there are functioning democracies. Hmm. So democracy is losing currently, losing the battle. And, um, well, Ukraine is a democracy and seems to be proving fairly robust in the current situation, but had you know, Putin's army managed, as I think he hoped, to just waltz over 
you know, just annex all of Ukraine in a matter of a week or two, which I think is what he was after, then that would have been one more down. And they are falling like dominoes. And, you know, India, the world's largest democracy by population, um, is 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 verging on being a failing democracy because you've got radical, you know, uh, religious led extremists in positions of high power. Um, I'm basically just monologuing here without a particular direction because your question is really hard to, to to speak sort of directly on to, to sort of pincer in on on the facts of the matter. But I mean, generally, I'm not um, and I, I, I don't feel a, a particular impulse or responsibility to be constantly upbeat. I'm not very upbeat about the state of the world, frankly. I remain upbeat about the state of humanity, and that's a very different thing, um, as as you probably will have got a sense of from from reading my books. I have found the world, in my experience, and I'm sure your experience won't have differed too greatly, to be an overwhelmingly kind place. And the vast majority of people's kind of primary default is to look out for people, particularly for strangers, particularly for foreigners, to help them out, to to check that they're okay, and to generally be kind. Now, people are all too often extremely different from, not represented by, and perhaps even divorced from the people that represent them, their government, or, or whatever it might be. Um, and so you've always got this this two level this disconnect between how people are and how sort of the state of the world is. And people can be as nice as you want to each other, but whether through mass uh, expression, you know, voting, or whether undemocratically, if you get the wrong people in power doing the wrong things, then you know, everyone can be nice and trying to be nice to each other, but you've got a few people who are, I mean, this is preaching to the choir, I'm sure, but you've got a few people who are able to suddenly implement a famine, whether on purpose or by mistake. Um, you know, the the sort of uh, great man theory of history, i.e. looking at history through the lens of a few individuals who pivotally changed everything, is increasingly discredited. And I suppose great person is, is, a, is a better choice of words because uh, it's not always men, although historically it tends to be males. Um, but, but, but individuals are able to make huge differences. I mean, in my country, in Britain, we have just had the sort of, well, we've just had a, a, a someone become prime minister who wasn't elected by the country. She was elected by point two percent of the population i think i.e the conservative party not all of whom even voted and less than half of whom voted for her so she's got the vote of less than 0.1 percent of the country and already we can tell that she's going to be an absolute disaster but there might not be an election for a year and a half and in that time she might be able to do she might not but she might be able to do untold damage to not just the country the economy the state of kind of um civil cohesion but literally to people's lives by um, not assisting people as we tend to now think of as is integral in a social democratic state, a state where you look out for people who, you know, you have a benefit system, you have, well, usually you have healthcare, um, you have various uh, tools at the state's disposal to make sure that people aren't just sort of thrown on the slag heap. And I genuinely worry that that in my country right now, we are in as precarious a position as we've been in my lifetime. And that is the point at which I'm going to stop waffling <laughs> and uh, let you uh, bring me back onto the rails a little bit, because it's something I could um, 
bollock on about for hours preferably over four or five whiskeys and uh and there'd uh there'd be no end to it well yeah i'd love to buy you whiskey or beer one day i would like to make a point with what you just said because it came across pretty clear in your book to me with on the roads that echo with you know from a micro view traveling through these tribal villages in africa and seeing how as you noted like it's a custom where the leader gets 75 percent of all of the wealth and gives 25 percent to the individuals is that kind of what i remember you writing about how culturally speaking throughout africa that's a common thing that was that was the those specific percentages were what we observed in um in the drc in congo in in fishing villages on on quite a remote river down in the southwest of the country but something along those lines is is replicated throughout much of africa and throughout much of human history uh hence hence uh, you know monarchies etc and that's kind of where i was getting at which it seems like this is something almost in us as a human species where there is a mechanism if pushed far enough where you can somehow justify to yourself that you know killing a whole population of people makes sense you know as the genocide in rwanda happened and countless genocides around the world and as you noted, just going through Ethiopia, where it's like you came to a breaking point where you're just like, fuck this. You know, like, I don't want to fucking take another rock to the head for no mm -hmm. reason. And obviously, it takes restraint and rational thought to restrain yourself. But then as you take it to a more macro level, you can see that the impulses are the same as you start to gather power. You might get into it for the right reasons to make changes, but then the system itself is so broken or flawed or you're walking into something that is unfixable at this point you know mm. and i just drew a lot from what you wrote about and i put it into micro macro view and it just seems like it's a cycle that will continue to play out yeah i definitely see human universals in in those points that you've just just said and the you know the the way to have a cohesive society society rather is to to kind of know and understand that those things are there firstly to try and educate people out of them or beyond them but also to have a, a system of checks and balances in place and the most uh, fair the most democratic countries in the world the places that we tend to look to enviously uh, Scandinavia Australia New Zealand um, those places have relatively recently and sort of constantly updated uh, systems. Um, Britain, with its uh, you know thousand-year-old monarchy and our you know the world's oldest democracy, the mother of all parliaments, we actually don't really have a written constitution. We have law by precedent, and there's tons of holes in it. There's lots of things that need to be changed, and they're very difficult to change. America, with its uh, constitution now almost sacred laid out by a bunch of people who had no way of predicting what the future would hold and I believe by and large at least by the values and standards of their time with the best will in the world laid out their blueprint for a fair society but that blueprint needs to be changed and updated you know semi-regularly and it has been there have been plenty of amendments to the constitution but not for a very very long time and we've now reached a point whereby a lot of people, certainly not all, hopefully not most, but a lot of people in the country think or have a vested interest to to sort of say they think that, you know, this is an inviolable, perfect, sacrosanct document, you know, gospel, the Bible, essentially, and um, and that it shouldn't be changed. And without sort of constantly reassessing, debating, discussing and carefully 
changing uh, your system to move with the times, then you don't keep with the times. Right. Um, I, I sort of referenced the Bible there. Religion is a very good example that in not all, perhaps not even most, but in much of the world, religion is increasingly taking a, a, a kind of a back seat in society because it doesn't um, it doesn't chime with it doesn't fit with modern society. The more that you develop a society society the the more outmoded and frankly untenable some of the doctrine and dogma um sort of wrapped up within many if not all different faiths becomes and uh, it's been very interesting seeing certainly over my adult life the increasing move away from uh you know christianity at least in in the uk there are so few i i have i think no friends who are uh staunch christians or 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 ardent believers as opposed to vague (laughs) vague belief um and i probably have strayed onto slightly um uh controversial territory here but um there we go it's another (laughs) aspect of human life that is uh endlessly interesting and uh endlessly (laughs) able to provoke no yeah and i won't go down the religious path right now even though i'd love to chat more with you about it I would like to ask you about when you set off on your, your, your cycle adventure and you wrote your book through sand and snow, you alluded to kind of maybe there was an underlying search for purpose. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, after all the things that you've accomplished, do you have a purpose that you've kind of landed on? Does, does your purpose change? What would you I, say about that? That's a great question. And I suppose it, it is always going to be to some extent in flux and it's not it's not wildly oscillating back and forth it's more like it's kind of slowly revolving around the middle of a kind of a venn diagram and that venn diagram one circle one sphere is wanting to sort of challenge push myself and kind of test my limits my capabilities another is wanting to uh learn about the world you know i'm I'm pretty much bottomlessly curious you know there's nothing that i wouldn't want to look into at least a little bit um and then the third would be i i really enjoy writing community and, and speaking uh communicating these these experiences both of my own and of other places and people and things uh communicating those with a wider audience so you know whatever is at the intersection of the the, the kind of the trifecta of that venn diagram my focus on each of the three different points of that you know might wax and wane a little bit here and there but it's generally my purpose uh, for one yeah my purpose nowadays feels like it's you know playing in the area that connects those three things yeah what do you prefer riding a bicycle and adventuring in any way shape or form or riding um i don't think i can compare them um i mean they're such different experiences and when i cycle i write every day when i hike when i kayak whatever it is when i travel i write every day and that's the only time that i do keep a journal a diary um so the the two kind of go hand in hand for me and are perhaps to some extent inseparable cool man charlie before we sign off i have like five questions like to pepper you with if you don't mind sure um first being who's your biggest influence I've seen you cite like Benedict Allen. It seems like you're buddies with that guy as an adventure and explorer. 
uh yeah benelick's definitely a big influence um and, and he's yeah he's a good friend now um i've found his sort of explorations over the years very inspiring um i used to be quite influenced well still to some extent i'm um, influenced by the you know the sort of the victorian and edwardian polar explorers casting after the poles um i was always quite interested in that um but increasingly i, I think i'm quite inspired by and influenced by various uh writers outside of the adventure sphere but in the non-fiction sphere so um historical writers and people who write about culture and politics uh so there's 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 there's, there's a lot of different people out there but seeing as you brought him up yeah benedict is, is definitely one of my strongest influences nice what about favorite book if you have one favorite book um there is a do i have it here i think it's downstairs uh there is a book uh, called Congo Journey by a travel writer called Redmond O'Hanlon that is absolutely mad. It's wild. It's a guy in the 1990s traveling to the Marxist-Leninist Socialist Republic of Congo. So not DRC, but the other, the Republic of Congo, as it's now known, um, in search of a cryptosaur, essentially the Loch Ness Monster of Congo. And uh, he is not the kind of hardy adventurous type he is a a a sort of oxford-based academic in his uh 50s by that point perhaps or late 40s with big mutton chop you know sideboards and um little aptitude for anything physical and his writing is some of the most uh, amusing and enjoyable that i if not yeah probably the most amusing and enjoyable that i've read so uh yeah congo journey love it what tools are absolutely necessary for you to have on you and your bicycle when you take a bike tour? Pen and paper. Um, yeah, I'd say those. Frankly. Perfect, because you can find everything else along the way somehow, huh? Pretty much. And if you can't, then you can always ditch the bike and start walking. <laughs> Love it. If you could describe freedom as a smell, what would it be? Ooh. Um... On a hot, dusty summer's uh, evening on a steppe somewhere, somewhere on the Eurasian steppes, Kazakhstan or Mongolia or somewhere like that, there's that smell of, there's quite soft, soft smell of dust, but it's warm. And it just, the, all the dust is settling after the day and it kind of just sits in your nostrils and it's just that warm, earthy smell carried by a gentle breeze um that's uh, that's up there love it if you could describe freedom as a sight what would it be uh big tall dramatic snow-clad mountains under a vast blue pellucid blue sky beautifully said Charlie, if you could speak to one audience member right now who's considering making a big change in their life, but they have a little apprehension, fear of travel, fear of telling their boss to fuck off, whatever it may be, what would you tell them to encourage them? I suppose the key is to just to just do something, even if it is starting small. And in fact, probably best to start small. Um, me deciding to go away for four years is quite an extreme and I don't think it's the right thing for everyone to do definitely I, I, I don't advocate that I don't go around saying carte blanche everyone should quit their jobs and um, you know 
cultivate a crop of saddle sores for several years. But um, if you can just take a first step, I know it sounds like a cliche, without necessarily even initially telling your boss to fuck off or, or you know giving up your home or whatever it might be but take that first step and if it if it is to travel then go on a trip take a couple of weeks leave or a week if you can go somewhere and just try and do things a little bit differently maybe on arrival you're gonna walk from the airport to the city center and get a sense of you know the city that way or whatever it is it doesn't really matter pretty much everything i do is a means to an end and the end is to to sort of see and feel and learn about a place uh and that's that's my jam that's what i do that's not for everyone but um whatever it is you want to do do it even if it's in an abstract form just go for it um and as i was saying earlier tell someone you're going to do it someone whose opinion you care about and then you probably won't want to back down and even if you even that's even if that's essentially you guilt tripping yourself into doing it there's uh, there's no shame in that beautifully said charlie thank you for your time my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Charlie. Thank you for your time. I really appreciated our chat. You're a very switched on dude, and I continue to look forward to the books that you write and the adventures you have. Folks, please head down to the show notes and click on those links to get one of his books. The first one I recommend is Through Sand and Snow. That's the starting point of his bicycle ride. The second one is On Roads That Echo. I listened to him on Audible. It was great to hear Charlie read him, so I really connected with him more in that way. But again, if you're a reader and you want to paint these pictures in your own mind through the reading process, by all means, get them on Amazon. They're awesome and definitely worth reading or listening to. And if you're a first-time listener, please hit that subscribe button. I really appreciate you being here today. And if you like this episode, please share with a friend. If you think somebody is going to get inspired by this story, do them a favor and me a favor by sharing it. Thank you so much again. I think you all are so very beautiful, and I look forward to seeing you in next week's episode. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that... Maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.